looking at, so we started a series probably about two weeks ago, or two months ago, I should say, uh, looking at this subject called the renovation of the heart, which basically is just a big subject title for really looking at a variety of practices of what it looks like for us to actually be followers of Jesus and what type of shape and form does it actually take for us. Uh, What we've been basically saying is that Christianity is not just something that you profess. It is that. There are truths that we are invited, called by God to believe, but it's even more than that. It involves an actual lifestyle. And when there's a disconnect between what we profess and the lifestyle, then you have this kind of anomaly of what's oftentimes identified as an angry, rude, not very nice type of a Christian. You've all met those people, I'm sure, over Thanksgiving. Um, hopefully you're not one of them, but the idea is that it's in, something, in, something is off, something is incongruent. As followers of Jesus, our lifestyle is to begin to be shaped to look like Jesus. So when we are saying all the right things and our lives are doing nothing but condescending and, uh, on other people that we uh, disagree with, that we hate, and we're just being filled with like vileness, there's something wrong with our understanding of actually what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so we're looking at the bigger idea, the, the practices that followers of Jesus have done for the past 2,000 years, that people have done as disciples in the Bible, that Jesus himself even did. Things like praying, things like studying the scripture, things like gathering together. Today, we are on the two-part series. If you weren't here last week, I'd highly recommend at some point this week, going to our website, calvarysoul.com, downloading the message on fasting. We're looking at the subject matter of fasting. So um, if you have never studied or thought about the subject of matter of, uh, of fasting, uh, there's a big reason as to why we're looking at that for a variety of reasons, aside from the fact that's all throughout the Bible, that people... Uh, that have followed Yahweh from the very beginning, the second book in the Bible, have fasted at various seasons throughout their life. Jesus fasted, his disciples fasted, Christians for the past 2,000 years have fasted. It is a practice that for many of us we look at, especially today in a modern westernized uh, evangelical church, if you look at yourself and think, I've never fasted before, and I think it's kind of weird, um, why, what's the whole vibe, why do people do that? that? That just simply underlines the fact that there's a, there's a disconnect between maybe our present experience of Christianity and um, whoops, our present experience of Christianity and um, what, what the Bible teaches as far as the experience of Christianity. And that's the big idea that we really want to try to address and at least bring some sort of connection between the two. So um, whoops, we got children watching children. Um, huh, it's a combo for something wonderful. Oh, there we go. Good job. Oh, good job, Grandpa G. Yes, children watching children. Um, anyway, so we, we, we really want to emphasize the importance of what it looks like to live out these practices. And one of the other things I'll say before we jump into this is the big idea at the end of the day is not the practices. The big idea is we want to be like Jesus. Uh, the practices are just simply the means Um, we'll look at this at the end of today's message, that it is possible to have practices, but have a heart that is completely unlike Jesus, unlike God, uh, and completely uncaring for the things that God cares about. And we'll kind of end on this note that's a somber note, just got to warn you on that. It's a somber note, but it's it's a sobering note for us to really think about the bigger picture of what God is up to in this world and what God is inviting us to be a part of. He's not interested in your religious activity or your religious duty or you just simply doing practices for the sake of practices. He is, however, interested in you becoming uh, a worshiper and a lover of him and then to be shaped like him. That's what we call the church. So with that being said, uh, I'm going to begin to jump in um, and then I'm going to pray first and then we'll just begin to jump in and take a look at the bigger subject matter. So Jesus, thank you for what you're up to in this world. Thank you that you invite us to be part of what you're up to. God, that you love us. You create a pathway for us to follow. And God, what you're interested in, what you're looking for, is us to simply say, we trust you. We give you our hearts. We make ourselves vulnerable before you. So God, we invite you to do what you desire to do here, in this moment, in this morning, in this time together. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said Amen. So um, what we said last week is a handful of things. Again, like I said, I'm not going to go through the entirety of last week's message. If you guys don't have Bibles, why don't you raise your hand, get some Bibles. We have a lot of passages that we're going to be looking at here today. If you do not own a Bible, you're more than welcome to keep this as your own. It's our gift to you. Um, I have been trying to encourage you guys over the past couple of weeks that if you currently do not own a Bible, like an actual codex, 
um, I would highly recommend um, either go on Amazon or go to a local Christian bookstore and buy an actual Bible and invest in it. It might cost you something, but that's okay. Um, we, we pay for things that are valuable to us. Um, a Bible should be something that's valuable. It's, a, it's an investment in your future. Um, or, like I said, we have a, an array, a wonderful array of incredible Bibles in our lost and found. All you got to do is eradicate someone's name, and you got a great, genuine, bonded leather Bible. It's all yours, um, free of charge, um, our gift to you, because we love you. Um, but what I want to do right now is I want to just simply say that we said last week is that we live in a culture that, for the most part, just indulges in the things that what the Bible describes as the flesh. Our entire culture, our entire system, the way that marketing works is, is all within appeal, not to just give you information about a product, but to tell you that if you don't have this product, your life will be less than everything, right? Um, you're missing out on something. And that fear, it's that FOMO, you know, that we oftentimes, we, we move from uh, this arena of I'm not going to buy the product into I need to have the product. And that's, that's, that's the hook. That's the way it works. But again, the whole, at the, the way that it works is it, it, it appeals to our flesh, our desires, our nature, our longings. And then we begin to move into that. But at the same time, this is the world in which we live in. And again, bigger picture in America, as an American for the most part, we live in a, in a narrative that says you deserve it. This is your right to have whatever it is that you want because of who you are. You know, you have, a, you have a right to have all this stuff. But the point that I would make is this, is that even within that arena of world in which we live in, there's mixed messages that we're signaled with. And I mentioned this last week, that in the, you know, the cathedral of marketing, um, where these images of worship get promoted the most, a.k.a. the grocery uh, you know, magazine line right there when you're walking out the door. You see all these images that are projected there on these magazines that basically say that you can have all of this. So on the one hand, the message says you can look like Adam Levine with his shirt off and have, you know, six-pack abs, or you can look like the Cosmo Girl, and you can have all of this stuff, but at the same time, you can also have it while eating, you know, hamburgers, with, you know, bun, and I don't know, those look like curly Q fries and loaded with cheese on top and um, chicken with what other type of buttery, I have no idea what kind of buttery, greasy sauces on there, uh, but you can have all of this. Like, you can have anything you want, anytime you want, and yet still look absolutely amazing. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that we know that's not, that's not true. That's totally not true. I mean, again, for some of you, you're like, like 0.0001%. Some of you in here right now, you're like, I eat all the time, and I never work out, and you have just that, that you, you look like Superman. You are ripped. Like just FYI, we, we don't like you. We're glad you're here because you need Jesus just like the rest of us. Um, aside from the fact that we harbor a lot of bitterness towards you, um, the, the rest of us, we know this is not true. We know that we cannot just live any lifestyle any way that we want and still have this health and desire of living health, a healthy lifestyle as we oftentimes are told it's going to make your life better. The point that I would make is this, is that it's a mixed signal. And everything in our culture is wired to say you can have anything you want. And what I led with last week was this question, and we'll kind of end, we'll go into this question. Then the question is really having to do with the lust of the flesh. Is there a practice for us followers of Jesus um, that helps us to resist our wayward desires and then ultimately to reorient our longing for acceptance and fitting in while turning our hearts to Jesus. Because food actually plays in all this. One of the reasons why we either indulge or don't indulge or eat a lot or eat certain types of food and avoid other certain types of food is it's not just simply looking healthy, though. It is part of that. But it is also something large where it, it's a way for us to fit in. We become a part of a particular social group. It's a way of being accepted in a particular group. So there's a lot more being uh, playing underneath the surface, underneath the hood, than just simply eating or not eating, abstaining or indulging. Uh, at the end of the day, the lust of the flesh craves to satisfy itself and to have the sense of belonging. And what I'm suggesting is if we go the way that the world offers us, you will be on this constant treadmill of confusion, of brokenness, of woundedness, of hurt, of lostness, and ultimately you might even end up losing yourself, which what Jesus says is tragic. And what his invitation for us is to not lose ourselves, but actually to be found. To be found, really, by some backwards math of actually losing ourselves, but then finding ourselves in him. Jesus actually giving us 
our real identity, our truest identity in him. And so what I would suggest is there is a practice, and the practice that we see that does help realign, reorient all of these areas is what I would describe, what we looked at last week, is, is fasting. So um, this bigger quote that I had was this, that the biblical practice of fasting is an intentional disruption of the rhythms of eating to focus one's attention on God, often in response to sacred moments, grief, and or repentance. So we'll unpack that in just a moment. I'm going to read a couple quick uh, Quotes from a couple of different authors, and we will begin to take a look at how the variety of different fasts appear in the Bible. Um, again, this is uh, part two, so some of the stuff I might reference was from last week. Um, so listen to these couple quotes, and I'll jump in. Uh, by Scott McKnight, one of the authors of one of the books that we had written on there um, earlier. That fasting is a person's whole body, natural response to life's sacred Moment. I like that image because that's what fasting is. It's a whole body response. It's not just a portion of me. It's the, I mean, because when you don't eat, that, does, that affects everything. Because food is not just simply physical, is it? It's also social, right? You go hang out with a bunch of friends, and what are they doing? Everybody's eating. So food plays into so many arenas of life that's a whole bodied reaction, a response to life's sacred moments. Piper, John Piper has another great, great quote. I love this. Just listen to what he says Christian fasting at its roots. Uh, as it, at its root, uh, is hunger for God. I love that. Just that simple sign, a simple sentence alone. It's a hunger for God. It's a way of basically saying, uh, yes, I'm hungry for food. Yes, I'm hungry for food. Well, what food offers. Because again, food also offers uh, society, right? It offers maybe an identity. It offers a lot of things. It offers satisfaction. It offers comfort. It offers whole... I mean, think of the many different ways of what food offers you and I. But what fasting does is it says, I'm actually more hungry for God than I am to be accepted by said social group or to be identified as being super fit or identified as fitting into particular types of genes because I want to be recognized and cared for and loved and accepted by that particular set of group. At the end of the day, it says, I'm more hungry for God than I am than all of these other things. Whoa. We lost it. Here, I'll read it. Is it there somewhere? No. There we go. Uh, let me finish this. It says, Christian fasting is not only the spontaneous effect of superior satisfaction in God. It is also the chosen weapon against every force in the world that would take that satisfaction away. I love that last little phrase. Uh, it is the said weapon against anything that would just take away that satisfaction in God. So think of it this way. Fasting is not just simply something you do. It's a weapon that you pick up that you wield, that you use in the fight, to use kind of Piper language, you fight for joy in God. Fight for what is most valuable to you, but also at the same time fight against those forces and those impulses and those desires that may actually be um, keeping you in a place of brokenness and woundedness. And fasting is a tool. It's a weapon for that. So with that being said, I want to uh, kind of reorient our minds and say by way of what we looked at last week, and then we're going to just jump into it right now. There's at least three different types of categories that I would describe fasting identified throughout Scripture. And, and I want to look at each of these three categories, and then we'll kind of put each of the passages that we'll look at under one of these three categories. So the first of which is what I would describe, I mentioned this last week, is a grief Fast. We didn't really look at the passages. Uh, fast that has to do with people that encounter severe grief. In other words, they're going through a really tragic time. This could be individually. This could be a community uh, where something really tragic happens or is about to happen or you're faced with it happening. And then by way of response is, is fasting. Um, the closest thing I can remember to this as, a, you know, as an adult um, was back in 9-11 was you know, I was pastoring here in San Luis Obispo at the time, and all the churches came together, and we basically came together for several days of praying and fasting because we realized in that moment of grief we had no idea what's happening in our nation right now. Like, literally, we, were, we felt incredibly vulnerable as a society, as a community. I think it was around that time, like, what, wasn't it around that time, like, that whole anthrax scare was happening as well, I think. I can't remember. I'm just bringing all these things together here, making stuff up. But all I remember is chaotic. It was crazy. We had no idea what was going on. Everybody was filled with panic and fear and anxiety. And we did what we felt like we could do best, which was just bring our hearts and our lives before God and to fast and pray. 
Well, that's kind of what's happening here. So it's a grief fast. The book of Esther is a story about a gal that gets raised up and she begins to be used by God. The children of Israel have been taken off into exile. They're, they're basically an oppressed people group living in a foreign kingdom. Um, this gal by the name of Esther, she gets raised up to basically become the queen. Um, except the, there's, a, there's a hidden twist in the whole story is that she is Jewish, but nobody knows this. So her identity as a Jewish person is actually concealed. And this is where the plot kind of thickens in the story. Um, you know, a lot of times people will say the Bible is a totally sexist book. It's because they haven't really, really thoroughly read it. Um, the Bible actually, when it does identify people, women like this, for example, Esther, it completely elevates them. I mean, they, she is the actual, absolute hero of this entire story. If, if this was a sexist book, that's a little bit going against the grain. But this, the whole point of this is to give credit where credit's due, and ultimately God is the one that's doing the work here, even though his name never is mentioned once in the entire book of Esther. God uses Esther to basically bring about the salvation of the entire nation. So there's other forces at work within the nation, uh, part of the king's staff, basically, that hate Jewish people, total anti-Semitism. And they basically created this decree to kill every Jew. And that's where the plot thickens, because here's Esther working on the king's payroll, because she's the queen. And uh, she knows about this plot, and she realizes she's actually got family members that are in the kingdom. And if this plot goes through, she will actually lose family member, and she might get found out and then herself be killed. That's where the story gets crazy. So she realizes the stakes are extremely high. And so what she has to do is absolutely depend upon God. In this moment of incredible crisis and grief, she does what people have always done, which is fast and pray. So listen to what it says in verse 16, chapter 4. Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, which is where they were. Hold the fast on my behalf and do not eat any food or drink three days, night and day. I and the young women will go and fast as you do. And then uh, I will go to the king, though it's against the law. But if I perish, I perish. It's absolutely amazing story of her just heroic efforts to like be this person in this moment. But prayer and fasting was the thing that precipitated this. Secondly, we see this guy by the name of Nehemiah. He plays in the storyline as well. A little bit similar type of a situation. The people of Israel in this context are also still in exile apart from their homeland, away from their homeland. And uh, Nehemiah gets news that those that are still in the homeland, in Jerusalem, are under incredible oppression and attack and susceptibility to the forces of nature and other just, you know, forces of tribes, people angry, uh, enemies of Israel. Because the city wall that built, that was built around the city of Jerusalem had been completely destroyed and broken down. And Nehemiah hears this and he realizes, my own countrymen, even though I'm, you know, several hundred miles or a couple thousand miles away from home, my heart is absolutely grieving over the fact that my countrymen, my, na my nation, uh, they, they are threatened and they're dying and they're suffering and they're hurting. And so what ends up happening is that Nehemiah does the same thing. He calls out a fast. As soon as I heard these things, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So you'll see this couplet of fasting and praying. You'll see this oftentimes commonly together. So not always, but most of the time when you see the word fasting, it's also coupled with this idea of praying. So in Nehemiah's response, he prays, he fasts, he seeks God because his heart is overwhelmed with grief over the loss of his people. Later on, uh, David, the psalmist, he writes in Psalm 35, he says, when they were sick. It's kind of an interesting psalm because he's actually reminiscing upon the fact that he had just been betrayed by somebody. Uh, what I love about the psalms is these are just the raw musings of David in his journals. It'd be like, you know, finding his journals and just reading all these things. And so David is reminiscing about the relationship that he had with somebody that had actually betrayed him. And this is what he's looking back thinking about. He says, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I pray with my head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. And he goes on to say, but, but, but they betrayed me, right? But in that moment, David's recognizing the fact that, man, when they sorrowed, I sorrowed right there with them. When they were grieving, I put on sackcloth and ashes, which is a way of kind of clothing yourself and uncomfortable 
clothing that would ultimately, you know, make you reminded of the fact that you are in sorrow or deep grief in that moment. So that's what we get from the Bible with regard to grief fast. Again, there's a lot of other passages you can put under this category, grief or sorrow type of a fast, um, but here's just kind of to whet your appetite. Secondly, let's take a look at repentance fast. And uh, what we see with regard to the second category is, again, a lot of different passages. I'm just going to give you one this time around. But the Bible is actually filled with this one. This is probably a, a very common, one, one of the most common ones, I would say, that when people recognize something was out of order in their life, when they, as God's covenant people, were veering or drifting as, either as a nation or as a community or as a tribe or as an individual, when they begin to realize that something was out of whack in the relationship between them and God, they would call for a fast. It is a way for them to reorient themselves, to reorient their mind and their affections and their heart and to, uh, to wean them off of whatever it was that they were coddling or giving themselves over to in order to focus upon who God was. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7 says this, uh, Samuel then said to the entire house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then put away your foreign gods, direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord only. Skip on down to verse 6. It says, so they gathered at Mizpah. Again, this is a, a, a community event before the Lord, and they fasted. And they said, we have all sinned against the Lord. Again, like I said, this is just one example of this. There's lots of them. But this is, this is, this is how the nation responded to God when they began to realize there has been a drift or a veer from our commitment, our relationship to God, into other things. So I want you to pause and think about that. As a culture living in America today where we have access to a menu of options to somehow numb um, ourselves, to remove the trace memory of any type of sorrow or grief or things that we feel shame or brokenness or sadness over as a result of circumstances that we do in our life. One of the things that we oftentimes do is when we go through a tough moment, when we begin to realize maybe things are not right in my relationship with God or my relationship with other people, one of the very first things that we typically do is we go to any one of those items on that menu of options and we try to numb ourselves from it. We go into a place where we just, you know, watch hours and hours of television or watch movies or we read a book or we go for a long hike. Some sort of means by which we can just remove our, the, the feeling, the emotion, the ache, the acute reality of something is not right in my life between me and God. And what ends up happening is, is nothing ever changes. We never get back to a place of restoration or reorder or reorientation with God. We just continue on in this long projected path of just recycling the same sins over and same patterns and same habits over and over again because there's never been that moment. And that's what fasting does. Is it creates this, this moment of actual having to confront and deal with my stuff but ultimately know that God's grace is to forgive. So what I would encourage you, like if this is, if this is a, someone, something where you're at, where maybe you have gone through a circumstance in your life and you've looked at there are places in your life, in your action, in your heart, in your desires that have gone uh, run amok or where, whatever types of circumstances you may find yourself, but just drifting from God. I would highly recommend this may be a good opportunity for you to actually imbibe in something like a fast like this. Again, it might be a day, it might be a couple days, but to just reorient yourself to who God is. It's a biblical thing. We see that people throughout the entire Bible have, have done this. It's a way of just pulling the plug on this supply line to our flesh and then ultimately reconnecting this supply line back to God. Say, so God, I want to hear from you. I want to do what you want me to do. I want to give myself over to you. And I want to grieve over the things that you grieve over. That's part of the problem right there, by the way. We don't grieve over the things that God grieves over. We're not moved by the things that move God because I think we're just way too distracted or we look for means when we feel that ache to try to remove that ache by any means that's available. So the way that they did this in the Bible was to fast. The third thing I want to look at, we'll wrap it up with this, is what I would describe as a sacred moment fast, a sacred moment fast. Another way to think of this is sort of a definitive moment fast. This is a fast that would typically take place 
around some sort of circumstance that was not necessarily looked for or sought after, but it came up, it had arisen, it had presented itself, and again, it could be a, a traumatic moment, um, but oftentimes it's a moment that has to do with God doing something profound. You know it's God, you realize that God's involved somehow in this, and you're trying to figure out what, what's the next step from this? Where do I go from here? What's the next uh, position or next step that God is calling me to take? And rather than trying to have to figure this whole thing out, uh, what the response is, is the whole body response to suspend intake of food and to focus one's attention upon God in these moments. And we see a variety of people doing this throughout the Bible. We'll give the most four like, notable ones. We'll look at Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and then ultimately disciples of Jesus in the book of Acts. So let's first of all take a look at Moses and uh, the book of Exodus. Uh, what we know a little bit about the backstory with regard to Moses in this particular context. Again, I told you uh, we had a lot of Bible stuff to look at. How are you guys doing? You guys okay? Falling asleep? Anybody like ready for a nap yet? Sleepy? All right. Um, let's wake up and uh, we're going to take a look at Moses. So first of all, Moses. We see that Moses uh, has just come down from Mount Sinai where he interacts with God and he's given the Ten Commandments. As he comes down, he realizes the people of Israel have already forsaken the Ten Commandments. So he throws the Ten Commandments on the ground. And God says, nope, you need to do this round two. So God calls him back up the mountain. Moses receives the Ten Commandments. And in this particular context, here's what we read. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tables of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets. Uh, which, by the way, dot, 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 you broke. You love that. I love the Bible in the way it's just straight up honest. It, it does not, it takes its characters. This is one of the problems when oftentimes we moderns read the Bible. We're like, read the Bible to find good examples to follow. Don't ever do that. Don't look at Moses and be like, I'm going to follow this example. Don't. He was not a good dude. If there's one guy in the Bible you want to follow, it's who? Jesus, right. Jesus. Everybody else, the whole point is to show how flawed they are. I mean, they do have highlights. They do have moments. Moses has a lot of incredible highlights. But the whole point is not to simply look at their lives and be like, what type of lifestyle should I follow after Moses, David? Don't. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. So there you go. Sermon's done. So it goes on to say, verse 2, be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. Verse 5. Skip on down. It says, Then the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Again, think the uh, sacred moment. This is a moment that was uh, that un, uh, never happened in Moses' life, never happened again, but it was a sacred moment that Moses was involved in. Uh, verse 6, The Lord then passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, the God uh, who is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the, the, clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. There's a lot there. I'm not going to have time to unpack any of that. I, just, I want you to listen to the story. Uh, to the third and fourth generation, verse 8, and then Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. Another form of whole-bodied response, by the way. Fasting, whole-bodied response. Worship. Another whole-bodied response involves all of you. Verse 10, then God said, Behold, I'm making a covenant before all the people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth for any other nation, and all the people among whom you shall see the work of the Lord. For it was an awesome thing that I will do with you. Verse 28, so Moses was there with the Lord for 40 days, and 40 nights, and he neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So it's the story of Moses, this encounter with this incredible sacred moment with God. It was a definitive moment in Moses' life, who was sort of the, the chief uh, idea or ideal behind the, the law. Moses represented everything that the law would once come become about. Secondly, we skip on down. We look at the guy by the name of Elijah. Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 19, it says this. Um, and then the angel of the Lord came and touched him and said, Arise, eat, for the journey is too great for you. So he ate and he rose and drank and then went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights 
to Horeb, to the Mount of God. Which is interesting to me because what happens in this story is a little bit different than Moses. But um, Elijah is a prophet, which meant that he had a very, very unpopular job. His job was to speak on behalf of God. And his audience uh, was, for the most part, uh, high um, political officials and dignitaries. And his message was really, for the most part, in opposition to them. Uh, during Elijah's reign, um, or as a, you know, his, his ministry and what he did, uh, there was this king by the name of Ahab. Um, you might not really know who Ahab is because he was outshadowed by his incredibly well-known and gifted wife by the name of Jezebel. Um, she's, she's not a sweet lady, by the way. Some of the reasons why you'll never probably ever meet any woman by the name of Jezebel. It's not, it's not, it's not a good representation of, of what a woman or a human being should actually ever look like. And uh, so she was a really, really wicked person, and she was actually looking for a means to actually execute Elijah. So Elijah is actually running from her. You know, she's powerful. She's got a lot of uh, ability and money and resources and uh, connections, and she, she's looking for a way to actually execute Elijah. So Elijah is actually running from her, but ultimately out in the wilderness. And he has this meal, and then this meal actually sustains him for the next uh, you know, 40 days and 40 nights. We, we have no idea what, what that meal was. I mean, it was slow carb, you know, it was, who, who knows, but it sustained him. For the next 40 days, here he is with no food and water in this experience with God. Verse 6, it says, And then he came to a cave, and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel. They have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Did you hear what Elijah is saying? He's basically saying, I'm the only one who's remaining that's faithful to Yahweh. Everybody else has given in. Everybody else has fallen by the wayside. Everybody else has gone down. Everybody else has become worshipers of these false gods. And, and here's, here's Elijah, like literally wrecking. I mean, does he have a reason to worry? Of course. I mean, powerful woman after him wanting to kill him. But what he's failing to see is God's presence with him is actually greater than the shadow that Jezebel casts over him. Does that make sense? And so it, this is a definitive moment for him. His life can go one direction or the other. He can continue to go on living, being ruled, governed, controlled, mastered by fear. Or he could be liberated. He could be set free by this encounter with the living God. So God takes him through this process and he brings this whirlwind in front of him and and God, God asked him, you know, is, is the voice of Yahweh in the whirlwind? And it ultimately gets to this point where he just, he realizes that God speaks in this still small voice. But the point of the matter is, is God speaks, God meets with him. He's in this middle of this fast. And then listen to how this all concludes. Verse 15, it says, Then the Lord said to him, Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king of Assyria. You shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, uh, to be king over Israel, and then Elisha, don't get them confused, Elisha and Elijah sound very similar, but different, different name, uh, the son of Shephat, to, shall be anointed as the prophet in, in your place. Uh, in other words, Elijah, Elijah, here's the assignment that comes to you from this moment here in the wilderness. Um, it's a definitive moment. He's got a crossroads. He can continue to be mastered by all these unknowns, or he can begin to be, a power, uh, be about what God has assigned for him to do. Think about that. Like, what, how, did, how did this all work out? Well, fasting was a part of this whole process. Um, for some of us, like, again, I, I don't know how you take life choices to the degree of seriousness that we take them. I'll give you an example, okay? I was talking with a gal that they are just about ready to move, and when they first started coming here, they moved from outside of California, which might tell you something, but they moved here, and the intentionality in which they had gone through to try to determine whether or not this was the church that God had called them to was, was mind-blowing to me, for one. Uh, they fasted, they prayed, they asked questions, and they were constantly telling me, like, I'm so sorry, I feel like we're just grilling you with all these questions. I'm like, you know, no, absolutely, don't, don't apologize, because here's what I love about this. You are absolutely being intentional. 
you're taking this whole thing seriously, as you should. Like serving God's people is not to be taken lightly. And I think oftentimes we just simply take it lightly. We look and we make decisions based upon major life circumstances, whether it's a job we're going to take, what church we're going to go to, what church we're going to leave, all these major life decisions we just treat with minimal weightiness because we don't see them for the value that they really are. And, and I would suggest, like, maybe this is a practice that might help you along the way to dig deeper, to really have some greater, higher level degree of intentionality of, God, I, I want to make sure I make the right decision. I'm going to suspend engaging with food or TV or media or whatever it's for a season because I really want to sh- sharpen, focus my ability to hear what you have to say because I don't want to be walking in disobedience to you. I want to be right where you want me to be. I want to see what you wanted me to see. I want to be able to be about the assignments that you've called me to be about. And this, this is part of that process. The practice of fasting, I think, plays into all this. And then finally, we see, or second to finally, we see Jesus. It says that uh, in Matthew chapter 4, we actually read this last week, so I'm not going to read this too much, but I want to really focus on verse 17 because Jesus goes and he fasts and he prays and he seeks God and he's tempted by the devil there in the wilderness. And ultimately, we're told in verse 17, Jesus then makes his way back. And this really begins to uh, be the very definitive moment that precipitates his movement into ministry. In other words, maybe his assignment, if you want to think of it that way, his assignment from God to then go to proclaim, to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to bring what we would describe as the kingdom of God. It was shocking, but it was all precipitated by what? Jesus fasting and praying. Fasting and praying. We see that as the thing. Um, lastly, I want to look at the story of the book of Acts. This is actually one of my favorite passages. Unfortunately, we don't have it. Oh, we do have it up there. Oh, you guys are so good. Thank you. Uh, we, in the book of Acts chapter 13, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, uh, especially for the church. The, so here they were. They were living in this particular city called Antioch. So Antioch, by the way, is several, I don't know, 70, 80 or so miles north of Jerusalem. So uh, Christianity started out as a distinctly Jewish um, sect. It was, it was not viewed as like, oh, Christian, Christianity, there's Christian. Where's the Christians? Like, there they are. Uh, no, they, they were Jews. They were Jews that worshiped Jesus as the Mashiach, the fulfillment of all their hopes and dreams. And, uh, but Christianity then kind of moved its headquarters a little bit north to the city called Antioch. And it was in Antioch that the church was a little bit more multicultural, meaning it was, it was, it was, uh, Lots of Jews, but it was Jews commingled with a lot of other uh, Grecian Jews, uh, Jews that had become sort of a Hellenized, meaning they adopted uh, non-Jewish culture as the, the clothing that they wore, and they didn't look like your typical Jewish people in Jerusalem. And for the people in Jerusalem, they would have looked at those Jews as kind of being like half-Jews, half-bred Jews, and, or like you know, lukewarm Jews, however you want to think of it in that context. But the point of the matter is, is that as the church moved, they, they faced this massive decision, what next? What do we do next? What does what God have in store for us next? And here's this great passage. I'll, I'll just read it to you. It says, And then Jesus, oh, I'm sorry, and, says, and there were at the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, um, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius, uh, Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of the Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. It's kind of an amazing, and again, I don't have time to kind of go into like this list of people that were part of this church, but this is like an all-star cast of amazing people. And then it goes on and say, verse 2, And while they were worshiping before the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit then said, Separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and they sent them out. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down. What I want to really point out with, uh, about, about this particular passage is that this becomes sort of the main uh, passage that leads the church from a mainly Jewish origin, mainly Jewish context, into a non-Jewish world environment. Let me, let me try to put this into context for you. Most of us, if I were to take kind of an, a body count, are, are not Jewish here, meaning you do not have Jewish background. Some of you might, but most of us don't. What that means is that the reason why you and I have the gospel to us today is literally, this is not an understatement, because of this prayer meeting. That prayer meeting happened. And as a result of that prayer meeting, of fasting and praying, 
And the Holy Spirit being able to be given the space to do what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Uh, they listened. They were given an assignment from God in this moment to then leave that place of origin. To then go with the gospel to areas that were dark and far and remote and way far beyond anything Jewish in its context. And that began sort of this whole unfolding drama of the gospel going to the entire nations. All because of this early church, these early disciples fasting and praying and then receiving this assignment from God. So fasting and praying is an important thing. Now, I said this last week, I'll say it again. Nowhere in the New Testament or in the Bible is it mandated that you have to do this. That's the interesting thing about this whole thing is you, you don't have to do this. That's totally fine. But... It is a practice. Jesus did. His followers did. Uh, people who followed Yahweh all throughout history did. The early church had done. Church the past 2,000 years continues to do. And it reaps benefits and consequences. So let's talk about some practicals, and I want to finish with a passage, and we'll be done. So practicals to think about. Uh, I'll just give you these uh, briefly, and I talked a little bit about them last week. Uh, number one, I would just say, if you're wanting to do this, uh, start small. Uh, first service, I asked for kind of a show of hands about half of the entire community, like, fasted, which I was like, that's amazing. That's so cool to see whether it, in response to something that's happened in their life. Again, this is different than just simply like an intermittent fast so you can fit in your jeans. This is like an actual fast that says, I, I'm doing this either out of grief or out of repentance or out of like trying to make sense of what God has for me in my life in this next season, whatever. Um, so if you are trying to figure out how to implement this practice, number one, start small. Uh, in other words, don't go from like never having done this to be like, I'm going to go do like a 30-day fast. No food, no water. Like don't, don't do that. You're literally just setting yourself up for failure. Um, number two, have a plan. Like know what you're going to do. When those moments happen, when you're going to fast, uh, have a game plan. Think, think prayerfully. Like what, what are you fasting for? Again, like I said this last week, um, secular fasting, which is a popular practice in today's world, uh, has to do with food and yourself. It makes sense. Fasting has to do with food, and then ultimately uh, the one who's enacting the fast, which is you, it has to do with food and yourself. Uh, Christian fasting has to do with the exact opposite. It actually doesn't have to do with food as much as it has to do with denial of the flesh, and it doesn't have to do with yourself as much as it has to do with God. I'm responding to God. I'm wanting to listen to God. I'm wanting to repent and return to God. So have a plan. Thirdly, uh, consider how it might affect others. Uh, this is important as well. Uh, like I said, you don't want to be that person that when they fast, they're drawing attention to themselves. You go out and hang out with a bunch of friends at a sidecar, and you're the only person that's not like ordering something to eat, and they ask you, aren't you hungry? You're like, nope, I'm the only one here that's like neglecting my flesh. All of you guys just indulge in the flesh. Enjoy yourselves. I'm going to pray. Like, don't, don't do that. That's silly. Uh, fourthly, um, fast from something other than food. So like I mentioned last week, uh, for some of you, um, food is, is a touchy subject uh, because you've had this long, sordid history with food, um, body image, and this relationship that has been distorted and broken. And what I would suggest, if that's, that's you, um, I would highly recommend finding older people. It can be, it can be male and female and or female. Um, find someone older than you that has more life experience than you, not a peer, but somebody that you can go to, hang out with, spend some time with, and ask them to pray with you, be vulnerable with them, and ask them to pray for you that God would begin to heal you. Because, again, it's not just simply about food. It has to do with image and this feeling of needing to fit in, of having others to affirm you, to like you, thinking that somehow it has to do with your body image. But uh, there's a variety of other things. I might be completely truncating this whole thing. But the point that I would make is this, is seek help. And maybe for some of you, it's just fast from something other than food. Maybe social media, Netflix, um, something that is sucking life out of your soul and reshaping you in ways that don't look like Jesus. Um, lastly, I want to read this passage. I'm done. Uh, here's a warning that I told you I want you to just listen to. So uh, the book of Isaiah, the prophet writes, he says this. Why have we fasted? So this is the people of Israel. It's kind of like a, it's like a song. And the first stanza are the people praying to God. But listen to how the prayer is. They ask, why have we fasted but you've not heard from us? Or you've, uh, you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves uh, and you don't take any knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. This is God's response. 
In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with the wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow his head like a reed and spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast in a day that's acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose for you? That you would go and loose the bonds of the wicked to undo the straps of the yoke, to let those who are oppressed go free, to break every yoke that you bound on others. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own flesh and you shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall then go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. God actually says, look, the way that you fast is it's all about you and you're living your life in a way and practices that are actually bringing more oppression upon the lives of other people. And God's saying, I'm a God that undoes oppression. I don't add oppression. I release people from their burdens. I free them from their enslavement. I take them from those things that enslave them and I liberate them. And if you're gonna be my people and if you're fast, you do these religious duties and yet at the same time, the way that you mistreat other people who bear my image, God says, I won't listen to you. It's it's just religious duty. And it's not until we see Jesus in the New Testament that we see to the degree that God actually says, I will step into the brokenness of humanity. He is the light that lights the darkness. He is the one that has come into the margins of those who are oppressed, those who are bound, those who are afflicted, those who were broken underneath the heaviness the burdens, the weights of their enslavement. He's the one that sets them free. And he's the one who leaves glory, which is this banquet, apparently, because the book of Revelation assigns for us as our future state that Christianity is going somewhere, and ultimately it's going around a massive table, a banquet. But in this life, we realize there are things that are constantly vying for our attention, that we are invited to say, say no to, because it, though it tastes good, though it looks good, will actually lead to death. An invitation for us at the end of the day is not to simply fast. It's to turn to the one who gave up everything for us. So in turn, we can be given everything. That's what we're invited to. That's what the gospel is. It's not about you doing stuff for God and somehow making yourself or elevating yourself or leveraging yourself to a place of respectability or acceptance. It's God doing everything for you and inviting you into this relationship. Hi. An invitation for you this morning is to trust this God that loves you. I'm going to finish. I'm going to have the worship team come on up right now. I'm going to have my good friend Mo come on up. And as I read that passage in the book of Acts, it says that in the church of Antioch, there are both prophets, people that spoke God's word, and also teachers. Um, I, it's just been ruminating on it a lot, that God loves to speak through a variety of voices and people. And I've asked my friend Mo to come on up, and she'll just kind of share some concluding thoughts and words over you guys, with you guys, and then lead us into some prayer and worship. So here she is, and here's the team. I just kept resonating as Brian was teaching this morning with that concept, the kingdom of God is at hand. And I felt really strongly this morning like the Lord wants to call some people out this morning and to wake some people up right here in this service. This is not what I felt like he was sharing in the first service, but I feel this this strong urgency that there are some people that he is saying it is time. It is time now to stop trying to build your small kingdom and to get your eyes on the kingdom of God, the kingdom that he is building I was also thinking a lot about this concept of freedom and how we're living in this culture that says freedom looks like you making your choices. It looks like you saying yes to whatever you want to say yes to. And freedom defined by the one who made us is not freedom and to indulge. It's freedom to serve one another in love. And that is the life that God has called us to as Christians, as people who bear his name, who bear his image, 
we have the freedom to lay ourselves down for the sake of others. That is true freedom. So this morning, I want, I want us to spend some time really allowing the Lord to speak, really allowing the Lord to, to speak into our hearts and to really just ask him, Lord, is there a way that you're wanting me to open up? Do you want to open my eyes up? Do you want to open my eyes to maybe even specific people around me that you're calling me to love in a way that's sacrificial? Are there areas that you need to lay down so that you can have your hand in God's kingdom and quit building your identity and building your life for yourself? We have this short time. This is it. Our life here is so short, and God came to break through to it. He broke through, and he wants us to live in that reality. So let's stand up. Are we people who are willing to work up a good appetite for God? Are we people who are willing to be hungry, be hungry for him? Are we willing to put aside some of the things that so easily satisfy, that are so quick? As the Lord works, my husband and I fasted this past week, and I was so, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised, but I was noticing how quickly my hands reach for my phone when I'm fasting and how quickly my mind goes, I should make myself some tea. I should do this. I should do that. Just constantly trying to fill myself up. Are we people who are willing to get to that place, that honest place in our hearts where we see, we see our tendency to reach for other things and to cry out, God, I need you. You're who needs to satisfy. You're the only one. You are where true life lies. So let's pray. I think we'll have some people up here to pray with you. I'm going to go stand over there by the cross if you, um, I'd be happy to pray with anybody too. Um, Let's worship. Let's allow the Lord to really speak to those places that we don't want to hear and those places where we just, we don't really want to see. We kind of just want to stay comfortable. Let's God, like, let God release us. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would release us this morning, that we would be people who aren't just coming to church and doing our Christian duty, but people who are filled with your Holy Spirit and people who can go out and look different and that others would look at us and be like, what do you have? God, you didn't just come to make us happy and content and give us good families. You came to completely revolutionize the world. Father, Set us free this morning. Set us free to serve one another in love. Set us free to find our identity and our purpose entirely in you and in nothing else. Kill the things that are actually choking out your life in us. God, make us willing to lay down the things that are taking away your purpose in our lives. Release your gifts on your people. Release your calling on your people, Jesus. Help us to do the work that you have called us to do, no matter what the cost. You are worthy, Lord. You are worthy. Fill us with your love, Jesus. Amen.